Well, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Church. My name is Tom. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you so much, as Seth said, for braving the time change and being with us this, uh, this morning. What feels like 9.20, it's actually 10.20. We'll all get used to it. Um, if you did not get a listening guide, please raise your hand. It's just going to be our, our way of kind of helping you follow along with the sermon this morning. So just put your hand up and Alex will get you one from the back there. Is the best defense a good offense? That is a question that has been posed from time immemorial. It's been posed by governments, by the military. It has influenced uh, strategy and warfare. It has influenced football game planning alike. And the reasoning is simple. If in a conflict, one of your primary goals is to protect your people and your resources, Would it not make sense to preemptively eliminate the opponent's ability to do you harm? Would it not make sense to defend yourself with a good offense? This line of thinking dictated much military planning in the U.S. and the USSR during the Cold War. This line of thinking has led some sports teams to to build their roster around just trying to outscore their opponents and play keep away with the ball. And in his letters, the Apostle Paul is no stranger to this line of thinking. He is writing to the church at Colossae, a church engaged in a struggle, a struggle with the pagan culture outside and false teachers within. And Paul knows that the Colossians could be tempted to adopt a kind of bunker mentality, to say that since the surrounding world is so hostile, we have all these problems within, let's just defend ourselves, let's disengage, let's hold up and wait. But his words in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, command the Colossians to go on the offensive, to hit the pagan world with gospel bombs in their deeds and in their words. Rather than withdrawing from the hostile world, the apostle commands the Colossians and us to live wisely among unbelievers in expectation of the return of Christ. And Paul says that we do this in two ways in this text, through wise walking and through salty speaking. Read with me if you would, Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of God. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you that you are the God who speaks. Thank you, Lord, that though we would know nothing of your your special intent for us, apart from you speaking, you have spoken to us this morning. You are speaking this morning. Would you cause us, Lord, to give proper attention to your word? Would you show us what are your promises? Would you give us the fresh grace to believe them? And would you give us a fresh desire for Jesus Christ and to proclaim his gospel this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. Living wisely among unbelievers in expectation of the return of Christ begins with wise walking. And wise walking, according to Paul, means that you live your whole life in a wise way. Now, there might be all sorts of good reasons to literally walk in a wise way. Uh, to watch where you put your literal physical feet so that you can avoid potholes, cracks in their sidewalk, and so forth. But the apostle is talking about much more here than what we do with our literal bodily feet. 
You see, in Scripture, a person's walk refers to their entire way of life. It includes the big choices about who we marry, what jobs we take, where we go to school, where we'll live, down to the most mundane decisions. How will we spend our money? What TV shows will we watch? How will we spend our free time? And all of our life, Paul says, is to be carried out in wisdom. Wisdom is a major theme of this letter. It's come up time and time again. And if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 9, that we preached on way, way back in the fall, Paul said that wisdom has to do with, know, has to do with knowing and understanding the will of God. It's a spiritual wisdom that comes from God and from his word, and it's contrasted by Paul with the empty, deceitful facade of wisdom that's promoted by the false teachers that are plaguing this church. Wisdom is not merely intellectual or academic. It is always practical. It takes up residence in the heart and in the life, not merely in the mind. And as an aside, this is really, really crucial when we're talking about the end times. David pointed out last week, and we'll see again in these verses, that this text has an eschatological overtone. It is dealing with the last things, with the end times. And Paul is telling the Colossians how they are to live in light of the imminent return of Christ and the end of the age. And as David pointed out last week, the end times has the potential to get Christians off topic and into fascination and speculation like virtually no other topic. And there are segments of Christianity that place a huge and, frankly, inappropriate focus on speculating about the various end times fulfillments of events predicted in the Bible. This is nothing but majoring in the minors of the worst sort, and it can leave Christians more interested in interpreting the latest events in the Middle East than in understanding and applying the Bible. But while Paul never shies away from reminding his hearers that they're living in the last days, his intent is never to get them fascinated, but always to stir them up to watchfulness and to holiness. So we need to ask ourselves this morning, are we fascinated by the end times portions in Scripture, or are we stirred up by them? When you come to Daniel or Ezekiel or 1 Thessalonians or Revelation in your reading plan, Do you get excited trying to figure out how all these symbols and signs, what they refer to, or or which millennial system best fits the text? Or do you find yourself stirred up to live in a holy, watchful expectation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? When you realize that you're living in the end times, Paul says, you'll see the need to walk wisely. And in particular, he says, you'll see the need to walk in ways that support rather than hinder the advance of the gospel. Paul says that you need to live wisely with unbelievers. That's what the word outsiders here refers to. Insiders would refer to members of the Colossian church, to those who have placed their hope and faith in the Lord Jesus. And outsiders are unbelievers, those outside the church, predominantly Gentile pagans in this culture, but also some unbelieving Jews as well. And whenever the Colossians are interacting with these unbelievers, with these outsiders, they need to make sure they are doing it in a wise way. As we saw last week, believers need to be constantly thinking and living like missionaries. Walking wisely towards outsiders means that we are always thinking about the missionary possibilities of each and every interaction we have with a non-Christian. 
1 Corinthians 10.32 says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. That, that encompasses everybody in this context. Walking wisely toward unbelievers means that you make sure that you don't do anything that would hinder men and women from coming to faith in Jesus. Well, what does this look like? It starts with remembering that when it comes to offending people, it is the other person who gets to decide what is offensive, not you. Walking wisely means that you think about your actions before acting. It means that you think about how this unbeliever, how this person that you want to see come to know the Lord is going to perceive your actions. And if there is something that you can refrain from doing that will give offense to this person, you hold that back. This does not mean that we water down the gospel or our gospel convictions. Living like the gospel is true. Living like Jesus is the only way to God, like there are restrictions on the sexual activities that are permissible by God, is going to offend people. Jesus, in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 19, says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The gospel that we proclaim and try to live out is going to offend people sooner or later. Walking wisely does not mean that you live ashamed of the gospel or that you water down its implications or that you hold back from obeying the commands of Christ, but it does mean that you hold back anything else that would make it harder for unbelievers to accept the hard gospel. So there's, there's two temptations we have to avoid. And one is having a kind of martyr's complex where we take the words of Jesus and we apply them to any sort of resistance or opposition or difficulty we encounter in this life. Even those things that we bring on ourselves. Some use these words as an excuse for all sorts of offensive and insensitive behavior on their part, thinking that since we're going to be persecuted anyway by unbelievers, there's no reason not to be an abrasive jerk to them. But that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what our text this morning is saying. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14, Peter writes, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. We ought to be people like Daniel. If you think back to the book of Daniel, there are men trying to pin something on him, trying to discredit him, and the only thing they could find wrong with Daniel was the God that he served, the gospel that he believed in. That should be us. When people try to find a reason to hate us, the only thing they should be able to find should be the gospel. We need to avoid the temptation to use texts like this to make excuses for our behavior around non-Christians. But we also need to avoid the temptation to, be, to try to be smarter and, and less objectionable than Jesus. I think this is a big temptation for most Western Christians. In an effort to maintain our comfort, to avoid persecution, 
we try to avoid looking odd for the sake of obeying the gospel. We fail to act in winsome boldness toward unbelievers, and we imagine that we're somehow being strategic or tactful, that our avoidance of offending people with the gospel is actually an evangelistic strategy. But when we do this, we are guilty of thinking that we are smarter or cooler than Jesus. If we think that we can, avoid, we can follow Jesus while avoiding persecution, while avoiding the suffering that he experienced, we are delusional. We are not smarter than Jesus. We are not better missionaries than Jesus. If we are trying to avoid offending people with the gospel and its implications for how we live, that is faithlessness. That is not faithfulness. So on the one hand, we need to avoid the temptation to be offensive just to be offensive. And we need to avoid, on the other hand, the temptation to shrink back from the countercultural implications of the gospel. And we need to wisely tread the middle ground, living in a way that testifies to the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, while making sure that the only thing unbelievers will find to be offended by is that gospel. Is a challenge for our tribe. Christians in reform circles may have more head knowledge than any other stripe of Christianity, but perhaps less heart and head level application than any other stripe. For that is what wisdom is. It is information, but it is information that does not merely fill up your head, but information that is processed and pondered and trickles down to fill up your heart with new affections and your hands with new actions. Walking wisely toward unbelievers is going to require us to do things and not merely know things. So I challenge you this week, before you go to your community group, look for a way to put this text into practice. Right now, where you're seated, think about the next time you're going to interact with an outsider. Could be a neighbor, could be a coworker, could be the cashier at Kroger. What will you do to walk wisely toward that outsider? What will you do to tread this middle ground of giving no offense while leaving room for the proclamation of the gospel? Think about that now and do it and be prepared to share that in your community group this week. And, and don't put it all on your community group leader. Don't wait for them to ask you. If they don't ask you, make that your high. Or if it goes badly, make it your low. <laughs> or, or make the person that you interacted with your prayer request. Make a plan now for how you're going to apply this text this week, in the next few days, and then do it. Because the time is short, the apostle says. That's why in our interactions with unbelievers, we need to make sure that we are living with urgency. The Greek word here is interesting. The, the word is ex agorat samonai. It is a present middle participle connected to the previous command to walk wisely, but it's given the force of a command in and of itself. Colossians, make the best use of the time. And the verb form Exogorazzo is taken from common commercial marketplace language. It refers to buying, buying up, or redeeming. 
The idea is that the Colossians will snatch up every opportunity they have whenever they have an interaction with unbelievers, just as a shrewd merchant would snatch up an opportunity to make a profit in a business transaction. The implication is the time is short. There are going to be a limited number of opportunities for us to interact with outsiders. And one is the reason, uh, one is the nature of life itself. There is not a person in this room who is promised tomorrow. But you have the opportunity today to do something that will resonate for eternity if you will make the best use of your time among an outsider. But there's another reason. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.29 that the time has grown very short. Like we said before, there is an eschatological, an end times dimension to this portion of the letter. Believers are awaiting the return of Christ and the end of the age. The church age, where the gospel can be proclaimed, has a timer on it. It is not going to last forever. Christ is going to come. And while the Colossians wait for the return of Christ, they need to snatch up every chance they get among outsiders because the day is coming when there will be no more chances. And many Christians, even those committed to the exclusivity of Christ for salvation and the reality of hell, committed to those things, live as though they have unlimited time to share the gospel with unbelievers. But this has no basis whatsoever in Scripture. Turn with me, if you will. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, one of the parables of Jesus. For it, that is the kingdom, will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward saying, Master, you have delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. 
But his master said to him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has no talents. As Christians, we have been entrusted with the currency of our master, the Lord Jesus. We have been entrusted with the gospel of salvation. And when he returns, he is going to demand an accounting of our stewardship. But many Christians live as though there's no urgency. They sit on the gospel treasure like this wicked, slothful servant in the parable, never sharing it with those who desperately need to hear it seemingly oblivious to the fact that their master is going to return. And when he does, the time will be up and they will have nothing but regret for the opportunities they let slip through their fingers. Paul tells us, don't be like this servant in the parable. Don't miss an opportunity. Snatch up the time because it is short. Walk wisely towards outsiders. Put nothing in the way of them hearing and believing the gospel. And do it with urgency, snatching up every opportunity you can. One of the most famous generals in the American Civil War was also among the most cautious and slow to act. Joseph E. Johnston was the first commander of what became known as the Army of Northern Virginia. But due to his extreme risk aversion, he eventually gave way to the more aggressive Robert E. Lee. And historian Stephen Sears writes about General Johnston that he was by nature a fault finder, seldom satisfied with his circumstances, always first calculating risks before profits. A story was told of him on a grouse hunting outing before the war. Johnston was known to be a crack shot, but on the hunt, he could not seem to find the perfect moment. The birds flew too high or, or too low. The dogs were not properly positioned. The, the odds for a sure shot were never quite right. His companions blazed away and ended the day with a full bag. Johnston was blanked. He was too fussy, too hard to please, too cautious. We can't afford to approach our time like this general did. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes, let him not find our magazines full of gospel bullets that we never fired and our mouths full of excuses about why the moment was never right. Let him find that we blazed away and ended the day with a full bag. Let him find that we walked wisely and made the best use of the time that we had. If this talk of insiders and outsiders sounds strange to you, it may be because you yourself are an outsider. This is going to sound like inside baseball to you because you are sitting in the stands and you are not in the game. If that's you, we're grateful that you're here this morning. But just as the time is short for Christians who need to snatch up every opportunity to share the gospel, the time is short for you to hear and respond to the good news. And if you are not a believer, let me make as clear to you as possible what it is you need to hear and believe. You need to hear that you are not 
a random collection of molecules and atoms that somehow cohered together and achieved sentience, but you were lovingly planned and formed by your creator, God. And you need to hear and believe that he made this world good, but that human sin plunged it into corruption and darkness and evil. And you need to hear that the God who made this world did not wash his hands of it, but he sent his son to become a human being, to take the penalty of our sin and die on the cross and rise again in victory on the third day. And that he offers salvation in his name to all who will believe and repent of their sins. And if you will believe and repent here and now, he will save you as well. That is what you need to believe. But do not be mistaken in thinking that you have all the time in the world. Because if the time is short for Christians to share the gospel, the time is short for you to believe the gospel. Do not wait. You are not only not promised tomorrow, you are not promised this afternoon. Repent and believe now, and you will be saved. And if you are a believer, ask yourself, are you living with urgency? Are you living as though the time is short? Are you praying for an open door? And when you see a crack, do you kick the door down? Or do you see the door begin to crack and think, there will be other doors? There will be other times. I don't have the time now. I don't have the right words now. I'll open that door next time. Brothers and sisters, you are not promised next time. If you have failed to walk through the doors that God has opened, confess and repent of those missed opportunities. He is faithful and just to forgive your sins. But resolve that the next time a door opens, you will walk through it and you will share the life-changing message of the gospel with an outsider. As the time draws short, we need to be engaged in wise walking with unbelievers. And in the same way, we need to be engaged in salty speaking with unbelievers as well. Now, it is important that we act wisely in all of our lives around outsiders. But Paul places here a special focus on our speech. And it's so helpful that he does because it contradicts and counteracts a lot of our modern thinking about how to go about sharing the gospel with unbelievers. I hear Christians talk about being Jesus to lost people, or, or they'll throw up that, that great, famous St. Francis of Assisi quote, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Always quoted in such a way that they show that they view the using of words as an absolute last resort. And many Christians, including a great many in reform circles, are guilty of thinking that we can do without words what the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus had to resort to words to do. And that is sharing the good news with people. I'm going to say it again. We're not smarter than Jesus. We're not better missionaries than Jesus or Paul. If Jesus had to use words to share the gospel with unbelievers, you are not going to get away with keeping silence. Our actions around unbelievers do matter, Paul has just gotten done saying that they do matter, but they need to extenuate and authenticate our speech, not replace it. So Paul says that we need to speak. 
And he says specifically that we need to speak in a gracious way there in verse 6. And this runs parallel to Paul's request for prayer earlier in in this passage in verse 3. The Greek word back in verse 3 is logos, which occurs in the plural form here for your words in verse 6. So just as Paul asked the Colossians for prayers for effectiveness in proclaiming the word of God, so now he exhorts them to be effective in their own speech, sharing the word with outsiders. And the Greek word for always is one that we should be well familiar with. It's pantote, which came up time and again in chapter 3. Paul is laying down a command for the Colossian speech that is meant to be all-encompassing. Whether they're conversing in private or engaging in public proclamation of the gospel, here are instructions for how this speech is supposed to go. This speech is to be gracious. The Greek word here, charitai, is actually the root of the Greek word for thanksgiving, eucharistia, back in verse 2, which has led some scholars to read this as a command that the Colossian speech would mirror the thanksgiving that is to characterize their prayers. And, And that is certainly true theologically, but textually I think the ESV has got it right. The word here should be gracious. It best fits the context. This is to be gracious, kind speech with goodwill, winsome, attractive speech. It is not sophisticated or deceitful speech such as used by the false teachers, but it is speech that invites its hearers to lean in to the conversation with the speaker. As the Colossians are snatching up every opportunity they get with an outsider, they're to be speaking in a gracious and kind way to articulate the truths of the gospel. Peter O'Brien points out that not only the content, but also the manner of speaking are important when it comes to the influence the believer exerts on outsiders. As we engage in conversation with the outsiders that God puts in our path, we need to ensure that our speech is gracious, kind, and inviting to them. And one danger that we can run into, especially in more theologically articulate circles, is that we can screen out unbelievers with the sheer amount of jargon that creeps into our speech. And language that can be a mark of sophistication and understanding among believers becomes unattractive and even unloving when it is dropped in conversation with somebody who might not know and might not care what eschatology or ecclesiology or pneumatology mean. We need to take pains to be able to articulate the truths of the gospel in a simple yet not simplistic way. And I would encourage you this week, take some time practicing out loud how you would share your testimony with an unchurched person. Do this on your own, or better yet, do it with a roommate or your spouse, and tell them to stop you if you start slipping into seminary or theological lingo. Make sure that it is something that an unchurched person could understand with the least amount of questions. If we're going to make the most of every opportunity with unbelievers, we need to make sure that all of our speech is gracious and winsome and free of any roadblocks to their hearing and responding to the gospel. We need to speak in a gracious way with unbelievers. We also need to speak in a life-giving way. 
That is the thrust of the phrase, seasoned with salt. It's idiomatic speech for Paul's day. And it needs some unpacking in ours. Because salt doesn't have a great connotation in our day. If we say that somebody has to take something that someone says with a grain of salt, we mean that that person's speech is inflated, exaggerated, unreliable. If we talk about somebody being salty about something or, or speaking in a salty way about something, we're, we're not thinking of what the Apostle Paul has in mind. In Paul's day, salt had a lot of very, very important functions. And one was as a seasoning, just like it is in our day. Salt takes something bland and it makes it delicious. Take the humble Idaho potato. <laughs> By itself, pretty bland, pretty boring, but slice it thin and fry it up and dash some salt on that, and I'll bet you can't eat just one. <laughs> but salt has other functions as well, especially as a preservative. Remember, this is a day before electricity, before refrigeration and freezers, and so salt had a special use for keeping meat from going bad. And finally, there's a parallel here to a lot of rabbinic writings from Paul's day, which teeing off the everyday uses for the salt, use it as a metaphor for the wisdom of God. A common expression among Jewish teachers in Paul's day was that the Torah, God's law, was like salt. So to sum up, this expression refers to the word choice as well as the content of the Colossian speech. It can't be bland, uninteresting speech. It has to have some flavor to it, some interest to it. You should take a bite of that speech and you should want some more. But neither can it be corrupt speech, like the speech used by the people in the world who are spiritually dead and decaying. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Salty speech does not co-op the profanity and the euphemisms that are used in the speech of the world. It's not lewd. It is used to give grace to those who hear it. Its words are carefully chosen to fit the occasion and the conversation so that everybody in earshot will benefit from what is said. And salty speech is full of the wisdom of God. So much of what gets said in our world is just foolish and unnecessary. We will say the most ridiculous things to each other just to get a laugh. And, and I'm ashamed to admit, but I have found myself making jokes about deeply serious spiritual matters at times. Salty speech is not like that. Salty speech communicates the wisdom of God and is reflective of a heart and a mind that are controlled by the wisdom of God. Let me try to draw all these facets together. If you want your speech to be gracious and seasoned with salt, you're going to think about three things before you speak. You're going to think about the person you're talking to, the setting and the tone of your conversation, and the God that you want that person to come to know. And thinking about these things will control what you say and it will control the way in which you say it. Do you think about things before you speak? 
Do you think about anything before you speak to an unbeliever? Several months ago, I was going uh, to the home office of the company where I work, and I was going to get to meet some of the VIPs, some of the, the, the top executives in the company. And, and they were kind of coaching us on, on how to have those conversations because they knew we'd be nervous. And they said, if you just open up your mouth, something is going to come out. But we can't settle for that as Christians. We can't settle for just something coming out of our mouth. We have to take pains that when we open our mouths, the right things come out as much as possible. But we must speak. We must speak. We can't make the excuse that we didn't know what to say or we didn't have the right words to say it. That is why Paul concludes this imperative in verse 6, be ready to speak. Paul urges the Colossians to adopt the old Boy Scout motto, be prepared. We should come into every conversation ready with gracious, seasoned speech, ready to snatch up whatever opportunities might present themselves. Peter echoes this idea in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. We need to be prepared. We need to be ready to engage in conversations about the gospel. And in particular, we need to be ready for the questions that unbelievers are going to have about the gospel and the things of Christ. And for those of you who are fans of that Francis of Assisi quote, here's where Paul throws you a bone. Because unbelievers asking questions of believers implies that there is something in our lives that is prompting those questions. Our wise walking with outsiders ought to be prompting them to ask questions of us. They ought to be able to observe the way that we use our time, our money, and our influence differently from the rest of the world to such a degree that they are perplexed. And they ask a reason for the hope that is in us. And our speech ought to be doing the same thing. Our gracious, salty speech ought to be prompting questions of the outsiders that we speak to. So we're not off the hook if just living out the implications of the gospel fails to elicit a question. If our wise walking does not generate questions, we need to make sure that our salty speech does. And when a question is posed, we need to be prepared. We need to be ready to answer that question as best we can. But Paul has in mind here more than just arguments and evidence that we can rattle off in support of the gospel. He writes that it is by letting our speech be gracious and seasoned with salt that we will know how to answer each person. Do you want to be ready to have spiritual conversations with unbelievers? Do you want to be prepared to give an answer to each person as the question comes up? Then let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt, the apostle says. And this will make you ready to answer each person appropriately. Memorizing an evangelistic presentation and answers to common objections to Christianity are all well and good. But if your speech is not always gracious 
and seasoned with salt. If your speech is always filled up with the corrupt content of the world instead of the wisdom of God, then for one thing, you're not going to generate any questions from outsiders. And for another thing, you're not going to be ready to answer in a gracious and life-giving way if they do ask you a question. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt, and you will understand how to answer each person. In the 2008 Academy Award-winning film, Slumdog Millionaire, the the protagonist is an 18-year-old named Jamal, and he winds up on the, uh, his country's equivalent of who wants to be a millionaire. And he does wonderfully. He's He's asked question after question after question, and he answers them all correctly. And he comes to the final question for the, for the grand prize. But before he can answer, he is taken offset and detained and beaten by his country's police. You see, his background was one of poverty and lacking in formal education. And they could not believe that he was getting through this game show, answering all of these obscure questions without cheating. But through a series of flashbacks, he's able to answer and explained to the police how through extraordinary circumstances, through the various twists and turns of his life, he was brought into contact with the answers to each and every question raised on the show so far. Despite his background, despite of his lack of formal education, in spite of, and in fact because of his rough upbringing, he was uniquely prepared to advance, to answer each and every question that was posed to him through sheer coincidence. Like Jamal and Slumdog Millionaire, we're going to be asked questions. But we have a lot more at stake than monetary gain. We're going to be asked questions, and God is going to use our answers to help people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But so many of us live like this boy, this Jamal did in in, in the movie. We hope that we'll just happen to have the right answer that we can be parachuted into that conversation and just happen to have a ready answer through through the circumstances and coincidences of life. We can't settle for that. Knowing that we're going to be asked, knowing that God could use our words to save somebody, we must be prepared through constant, consistent, gracious, salty speech to answer each person who asks us for the reason for the hope that is within us. And we need to be able to answer with gentleness and with respect. Are you preparing yourself daily so that you understand how to answer each person? What is your speech like day in and day out? Is it gracious? Is it seasoned with salt? Is it distinctive? Is it informed by the wisdom of God? Because if it's not, you're not going to be able to just flip the switch when the conversation turns spiritual. I would encourage you to spend time daily in the book of Proverbs. There are 31 chapters in Proverbs, one for each day of the month. And if you read Proverbs daily, you will not only find the contents of Proverbs spilling out into your speech and your actions But the specific guidance that Proverbs has on the tongue will exert a controlling influence, making your speech more gracious and more salty on a day-to-day basis. Are you preparing yourselves in other ways? 
Do you have the knowledge to be able to answer common objections from unbelievers? Do you make time to pray for the unbelievers in your life on a daily basis? Again, you can't just parachute into a conversation like this. You need to have your head full of the gospel, and you need to have called down the power of the only one who is able to save. But I would, I would guess for most of us, we don't lack knowledge as much as we lack compassion. And that lack of compassion is why we fail to pray. We become modern-day Jonahs when we leave the church building and go out into the world. We rub elbows with people every day who are on the path to hell. And when they have a question for us, when we refuse to engage them, when we don't have an answer ready, we are as uncompassionate as Jonah was to the city of Nineveh. We need to have compassion on these outsiders. We need to engage them. And that compassion needs to drive us to be ready when we have a conversation like that. You might be thinking, but I wouldn't want to run the risk of saying the wrong thing in the wrong way and driving that person further from the gospel. And if you give an answer to somebody, you might not give the best answer. You might not say it the right way. In fact, you might give the worst answer anybody in the history of Christianity has ever given to a gospel question. But the dimmest candle is like a bonfire to somebody who is trapped underground in a pitch black cave. The least amount of light you can give to an outsider is more than they will ever have on their own. Get the knowledge you need. Pray in advance. And let the reality of hell and Christ's offer of salvation to all who believe fill you with compassion toward the outsiders you see on a daily basis so that you take pains day by day to fill your speech with grace and with salt. As David pointed out last week, the end times are here. They started when Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead, and his return is nearer now than when we first believed. We can't live as though we have an unlimited amount of time with these people. The time is drawing short for us to bear witness to the gospel. We need to walk wisely with outsiders, snatching up every opportunity that God gives us with them. We need to season our conversation with salt and make sure that we are ready with knowledge and with prayer and with a heart of compassion to be able to answer each person. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you could have left us in our sin. You would have been just to do so, but instead, you did the unthinkable. You sent your Son who took on flesh to become like one of us. You humbled yourself, Jesus. You became sin for us. You hung on that cross for us. You died for us. You rose again for us. And you have given us, by your sheer unmerited favor, this gospel that can save. You've given us a very short amount of time and given us a select group of people that we will 
come into contact with, and they may never hear this except from our mouths. That may be the way that you have ordained for them to come into your kingdom, Lord. And we, all of us, have failed to take advantage of every opportunity. We have seen doors crack open. We have seen doors swing wide open, and we have run the other way. I have run the other way. Lord Jesus, would you let the urgency of the times fill us with compassion for these people. Let, let their memory of what you have done, let the present awareness of what you have done and how your blood pleads for us day by day drive us to be ready for these conversations. Let us daily walk wisely with these people. Let us daily season our speech and be gracious to prompt questions and to be ready to answer questions. And Lord Jesus, would you use our answers to save people? You who alone can save, you who alone will send the Spirit to, to bring about the new birth in people's hearts, would you use our speech as the occasion when you do that? So that we will not be like that servant who hid his talent in the ground, but we will be those who hear, when you come, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Let that be true of every person here. And we ask these things in your name, Lord. Amen.